0: All right, so before we get into Psalm uh, 119, I want to take us to uh, Matthew chapter 7. This kind of, to me, this helps kind of set the stage or the framework for understanding what we are going to see in um, in this last section of the psalm. And when we get to Matthew 7, uh, we're in a section of the scriptures called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are basically just Jesus' words that were recorded from uh, probably uh, multiple sermons that he would preach uh, as he would travel around. Uh, but he was on a particular mountainside at one point when these things were recorded. And so here he talks about a lot of things. Uh, there's, there, it, it deals with a lot. But at, towards the very end of his Sermon on the Mount, he's, he's talking about... Um, something that I think is foundational and important for us to, to understand. And that is the, where the roots of Christianity and our faith come from lead to the fruit of our faith and, and how we live our lives. It's, it's the roots and the fruit. And, and so as you look at verse 15 uh, through 20, uh, Jesus says this. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves you will recognize them by their fruits are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles the obvious answer is no right so every healthy fruit every healthy tree rather bears good fruit but the diseased tree bears bad fruit a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. All right, so in this section, he's talking about, he's giving us a warning to pay attention to our teachers and what we're learning from people and who we're listening to. And in that context, he talks about the idea of fruit, healthy fruit comes from healthy trees. And unhealthy fruit, bad fruit comes from unhealthy trees, diseased trees. Right? And this is just this is not rocket science. This is very simple. We all understand this. That fruit comes from certain kinds of trees. Apples, apple trees grow apples and so on, right? We don't we don't get different fruit from things that don't aren't meant to grow those fruits. And if a, if a tree is producing bad fruit, it tells us there's something wrong with the roots. There's something wrong foundationally. There's a disease that's causing the problem in that tree. Okay, so, so here's where we're at. I, I think what we can take from this is a real simple lesson, that the health of the roots are what lead to the health of the fruit. Right? The health of the tree is what creates good fruit, And I I think we, we talk about this a lot in different ways, right? But what we produce in the Christian life, the things that come out of us in the Christian life have to come out of us as we are rooted to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The roots of the Christian life is is founded in what Christ has done for us which is revealed to us in the scriptures that our that our whole lives need to be rooted and grounded in that so that the fruit that's produced in our lives is good fruit godly fruit the fruit of the spirit and so the the roots that we that we have our lives grounded in leads to the fruit of our lives and i think as we get to Psalm 119 and conclude this, that's what we're seeing, essentially, in different language. But we're seeing that being grounded in the gospel is what leads and produces the things in our lives that we long to see. And so here's, here's how this is going to break down. We're going to look at uh, these two stanzas. The first stanza primarily is going to deal with the fruitfulness of the Christian life. What kind of things grow out of us and come out of us as we live in Jesus? What are, the, what are the indicators or the markers of a Christian's life? That's the first part. So He starts with the fruit. And then the, the second stanza today, the last stanza of the whole psalm, really begins to establish uh, where that is rooted in and how that actually comes about. So this, this psalm kind of reverses those. It doesn't look at the root first. It looks at the fruit, but then it works its way backwards to the foundation. And so what we're going to do is we're going to walk through that, and then we're going to run over to Romans uh, 15. And I want to just take a few minutes at the end here to talk about how this actually practically plays itself out in the local church and, and how we hope it plays out here Okay, so let's, let's go to uh, verse 161. Uh, we're just going to kind of go rapid fire through several verses here and looking at different uh, fruit that, that grow out of the Christian's life in God through his word. It says this, "'Princes persecute me without cause, "'but my heart stands in awe of your words.'" So he starts with this, princes persecute me without cause. What does he mean by that? Well, he's talking probably, this is written by King David, and King David had obviously a very war-torn king, kingship. His, his reign as king was very bloody. It involved a lot of wars outside of Israel, these enemies of Israel fighting them and waging war with them. And internally, he had a lot of internal conflict with his own children, uh, particularly Absalom, who tried to, uh, well, conspired to take David out so that he would become king. Uh, He had a very tumultuous reign uh, uh, on both fronts, externally with other uh, nations and internally with his own son. And so this uh, this simple sentence, princes persecute me without cause, um, is really just him pouring out his heart to God saying, I... I've been attacked and, I'm, and, I, and I don't have any reason to be attacked. It's just, it's without cause. But he's dealing with all of this persecution and conflict in his own family and, out, and out, externally outside of his own nation, which is actually why uh, God doesn't allow David to build the temple. Um, got, he wanted to build God his temple and God said to him, no, you're, you've got too much blood on your hands. We're not going to let you do it. And so Solomon, his son, David's son, who did actually become king after his death, uh, was, was given the opportunity to build the temple and he had a very peaceful reign uh, as king. And then it went really south after that. But, but here's, here's the point, right? He's, he's got all this persecution in his life but, there's the key word here, right? But my heart stands in awe of your words. So even though his, his life is tumultuous, his life is difficult, he's got all these people, his own children in some cases, persecuting him, it doesn't change that his heart stands in awe or in amazement of God's words. And I think that this is the first fruit that we're seeing, uh, well, it's the first fruit we're seeing in this passage. It's also the first fruit that grows out of a Christian's heart. As we meet Jesus and are drawn to him through his word, what produces in our hearts is awe. Or, Or you could say worship. Amazement of God. And this sense of looking at God for who he is and going, wow. Like that's what the Christian life, produces, right? It produces a sense of, I'm not great, I'm a sinner, but God is great, and I need to stand amazed at his presence and actually go, okay, he, he's worthy of all of my worship and my awe and my amazement. It, we get glimmers of this in the world we live in, right? When we are encountering amazing displays of creation, we, f- we feel this, right? And the created world does create a sense of awe. Like nobody goes to the Grand Canyon and looks at this amazing thing and goes, I'm awesome. Nobody does that. I mean, if you did, you'd you'd need to go to a mental hospital because you're a crazy narcissist. Nobody does that because the human heart, even if we're not Christians, we know that there's something bigger than us and that produces awe, like an amazement and And when we know that God is the one who created the amazing things in the world, then then our awe doesn't get directed just at the created world, but it's directed at the God who made the created world. And so we are in amazement and awe and worship of God. That's the first fruit, both in this passage and in terms of what happens in our lives as we become followers of Jesus. We grow this fruit because the, the roots are in Jesus our hearts are drawn into awe and amazement at him and what he says. So that's the first one, right? Awe, worship. Look at verse 162. It says, I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. So he's saying again, here's the verb, right? Rejoice, which derives out of joy, right? Rejoicing is the response of a joyful heart. And so here you see the second fruit in this passage is joy. And that leads to rejoicing, which leads to worship as well. But he says, I find joy, I rejoice at your word, like one who finds great spoil. So the, the, the imagery here is of somebody who stumbles across some huge, amazing treasure and it's yours, and you get to keep it and have it, like how much excitement and and joy would that produce in your life? Now, most of us would would love that to happen to us. It probably won't, right? Um, But imagine it happening, or imagine you getting a call from a random lawyer who says that some great 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 aunt in Lithuania died, and you're her heir like that would be crazy and great like you'd be stoked uh, if that happened to you. it probably won't right but um but hey, what if it did you would you would be super super thrilled uh, as you should be, but what the psalmist is saying is, is just like that, as if you came across this amazing wealth of of resources that you didn't have before the the joy that would be in your heart in that should be similar and even actually greater for the joy you should have at God and his word. Joy is produced in our hearts as we grow in Christ. Look at verse 163. It says I hate and abhor fate, falsehood, but I love your law. So here's another here's another one love. Love love for God, love for his word, love for uh, what, what he says. And yes, that, that does mean that we don't, we don't love falsehood. We don't want what's false to be loved by us. We want to love the truth, which is found in God's word. But the action here is that love is produced in our hearts as we grow in Christ. It's one of the fruit that's, that grows in us. Love for God and ultimately then love for people which leads to a desire to help more people love Jesus, right? That's the whole Christian life in a nutshell. Loving our God, loving each other, and helping each other love our great God. Love is one of the fruit that we see grow. Verse 164, seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. So there's praise again, worship again. But then look at verse 165, great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. Peace. There's another fruit. The heart of a Christian grows in peace. We're at peace with God because Christ has reconciled us to himself. So we're not enemies of God. We're not in opposition to God. We're at peace with God through the gospel. That, that peace that's produced in, in our relationship vertically with God lays out peace horizontally with one another, that we can be at peace with all people. As, as, as much as it's on us to do so, we should strive for peace with one another in relationship because that peace has been established between us and God. But peace also carries on an internal like sense of uh, just contentment. We don't have to live in a chaotic way. We don't have to live in in absolute chaos and uncertainty because we can be grounded in the peace of God. He says nothing can make them stumble, right? Stumbling is just this chaotic, if if you were trying to walk and you just kept falling over and falling over and falling over, that would not be a peaceful existence, right? So peace of God is is giving us the ability to keep walking towards him and to continue to do that in a, with a demeanor of contentment. Great peace. Not just a little bit of peace, great peace. Verse 166, I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. So hope, right? Hope. Hope. This is another fruit that grows in the Christian's life. Now, I want to speak to hope a little bit because I know that that word, as we use it in English, in the English language, often denotes an idea of, okay, cross your fingers, close your eyes, just hope for the best. And it's sort of this uncertainty, but it's a wishful thinking, right? That's not what biblical hope is. Biblical hope is a certainty, An absolute certainty and surety because God has said these things will happen, and we can trust Him because He's proven Himself to be trustworthy. And so we can say our hope for salvation is in the fact that Christ lived and died and rose again, and and He will return again for us to right all the wrongs. And that hope grows in us, not in a close your eyes, cross your fingers. And, and just hope for the best kind of mentality, but rather a, a, an assurance of the things that God has for us. Hope is a, a certainty. It's a, it's, we're grounded here. We're going to stand our ground, and we're going to keep going forward. And that's actually where the psalm goes. Look at verse 167 and um, 168. It says, my soul keeps your testimonies i love them exceedingly i keep your precepts and testimonies for all my ways are before you in other words god you know everything about me all my ways are known to you god and so i keep your precepts and my soul keeps your testimony so so th- this is not a i don't think this is a necessarily a separate thing from hope I think this is the outcome, the, out, the overflowing of hope. And, it's, and I guess we could call it its own fruit in a sense, but it flows out of hope. And here's what this idea of keeping God's commandments is. It is endurance in the Christian life. That as we grow as Christians, the fruit that is produced in us is a fruit of endurance, sticking with it, sticking to it, not shaking, not shifting, not, not being tossed to and fro, right? To, to, be, to have this stick-to-itiveness in the Christian life that keeps us going forward even when things are hard, especially when things are hard. That's when you need endurance more than ever, right? Like you don't need endurance if something's easy to do. You need endurance to keep doing the thing that is really hard that you want to throw in the towel on and you want to give up on. You, you need endurance and patience in those things. And so we're seeing that hope, knowing that God is who he is and that he, that he will actually do what he promises he will do. That is the motivation that leads us to this fruit of endurance. that we can stick with Jesus, even and especially when life is hard. Because of the hope and peace and love and joy that he produces in our hearts. As fruit, these things uh, come out of us, then the result of these things is we, we endure and we stick with Jesus. So, all of those things in, that, in this first stanza, these are just some of the fruits. Of the Spirit, right? We we know that Galatians gives us a a longer list, but some of the things that Paul says in Galatians are certainly mentioned here. Love, joy, peace are the first three things in Galatians that Paul lists as the fruit of the Spirit. We see love in 163, we see joy in 161, we see peace in 165. Um, and, And so you can just go through the list of all the things that the Holy Spirit produces in us as we walk with Jesus. The things that grow in us, some of them are mentioned here as well. all right, so that 's the fruit. But real quickly let 's look at the the root. How does this come about? How does this happen? W- where does this ultimately come from and that 's where the last section of Psalm one nineteen takes us. If we look at verse one sixty nine through one seventy six um, we're gonna, we're gonna see ultimately where King David is giving the credit for all these fruits in his life because they're not just coming from him. Look at verse 169. It says, Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. "'My lips will pour forth praise for you. "'Teach me your statutes. "'My tongue will sing of your word, "'for all your commandments are right. "'Let your hand be ready to help me, "'for I have chosen your precepts. "'I long for your salvation, O Lord, "'and your law is my delight. "'Let my soul live and praise you "'and let your rules help me. "'I have gone astray like a lost sheep. "'Seek your servant.' For I do not forget your commandments. So as we read those, um, here's here's what's happening. He is explaining the root of our of our of our Christian life that leads to the fruit we've just looked at ultimately stems from the grace of God. Look at it. God gives us understanding. God delivers us according to his word. God teaches us his statutes. God is ready to help us. God gives us salvation. God uses his word to help us. Again, that's repeated, this idea of help. And then ultimately in 176, David acknowledges that he has gone astray like a lost sheep and that God seeks him out and finds his servant. These are the, the roots of the Christian life. God's grace, God's help, God's seeking of us when we go astray. These are the things that set the foundation for all the fruit that we long to see in our lives. We have to see God initiate a relationship with us by his seeking and saving the lost, him pursuing us through Jesus, coming into the world to be for us our good shepherd who would, who would pursue lost sheep, bring us into his fold and ultimately teach us, instruct us, help us and do all the work that needs to be done to get us into those roots that can then produce the fruit. What we're seeing essentially is something that we talk a lot about here, and we've, I've said this a ton, and I'll continue to say it, I'm sure, but it's gospel doctrine leads to gospel culture. Gospel doctrine leads to gospel culture. I stole that uh, with permission from a guy named Ray Ortland, who is a pastor, he's retired now, um, pastor and author in... in um, in Nashville. Uh, and for the last four or five years at this church, we've been hammering this, beating this drum, going, this is the key to, the, to living the Christian life in the context of the local church. That what God does and who God is, which is gospel doctrine, what, what we believe, what is true, what is shown to us in the scripture, these things should lead us to gospel culture a culture in which the gospel flourishes and the outcomes of the gospel are seen. In other words, we're seeing the roots are are what God has done and who God is. And the fruit is that we live as if that's true within the context of the church. Gospel doctrine leads to gospel culture. The root and the fruit. You can say it however you want to, but that's, we've got to get to that point. If we try to, to produce fruit without the foundation of Jesus Christ and the message that he has given us through his life, death, and resurrection, if we try to produce fruit outside of that, what are we going to get? We're going to get bad fruit. We're going to get the kind of fruit that Jesus talks about from the false prophets. These people who are trying to sound like they love God, but in fact their fruit demonstrates that they're not of God. That's what's going to happen to us too. We can't fake this for very long. We can't manufacture this. Notice that Jesus doesn't use an industrial imagery. He doesn't use a. Uh, he doesn't talk about building a tower or or in his world because there was no industry in his world, right? Like it's way before the industrial revolution. But there were a lot of things that, that men can create. Even in his day, there were a lot of things men could create. And he doesn't use an analogy of that. What does he use? He uses the analogy of a tree. There's nothing more out of our hands than agriculture in a sense, right? We, we plant, we water, but we can't make any of that grow. God makes it grow. We don't, we don't create the fruit on the tree Yes, we can create the conditions where that can perhaps thrive, but we can work as hard as we want and make the best conditions we can, and still it's up to God if that fruit grows. That's the analogy Jesus uses. He uses the analogy because it's out of our hands to produce this and manufacture this. It has to be done by, by Christ through the roots of the gospel. So as we plant ourselves there, he begins to produce that fruit in us. So let's, let's turn quickly to the New Testament. Because as, as I was thinking about this passage and the things, go to Romans 15 if you'd like to turn there. Um, we're going to be in verse uh, 5 through 7 primarily here. But he, here's, what, here's what I'm seeing. Um, as, as I look at this passage, and I'm looking at things like joy, and love, and peace, and hope, and endurance. We, we actually see that these things that we so desperately long for in, as fruit in our lives actually flow from the very nature and character of God himself. So Romans 15, we're going to look at verse 5. Uh, five and six, and then look at verse seven a little bit here as well. But look at Paul, Paul prays. This is actually a part of a prayer that he's praying for the church in Rome. And here's what he says. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at at this. Verse 5. Go back to verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement. May the God of endurance. So some translations um, will, will translate this the God who gives endurance or encouragement. Maybe you have a translation that says that. That's okay, that's not wrong, but that's not actually what the, what the original language says. It doesn't say God gives these things, it says God is these things. God is the God of endurance and encouragement. And so because of that, yes, he does give those things to us, that flows from who he is. But I think we need to be a little bit more precise in understanding this, God is the God of of endurance and encouragement. What does that mean for God to be a God of endurance? Well, it means that God is enduring in that he's exceedingly patient with us. He's patient. And this is is clear from the whole scripture that God is a God that is slow to anger and abounding in love. He is a God that hangs with his people. He sticks with us. He doesn't give up on us. He's a God of endurance. And he's the God of encouragement, which means to give courage, to keep you going. Right? When we encourage one another, we're giving each other courage to keep moving through the world that we live in. God is these things. God is endurance. God is encouragement. And so what does he do? How does that flow into our lives that he grants to us He gives us this. This is a grace from him and Paul's praying for this to be seen in the church that he would grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus so that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So, so listen, this is not some pie-in-the-sky, um, kumbaya, around a campfire kind of thing. In fact, I know we can read that out of its context and go, well, Paul's just asking for something that's impossible here. We can't, we can't possibly be in perfect harmony with each other. But actually, it's amazing, because in the whole context Everything that he's been talking about up to this point, verse 14 and 15 uh, chapter 14 and the first part of 15, is actually talking to a church that doesn't agree about things. This church, uh, like every church, has people who have differences of opinion. And that's OK. Paul is not saying we can't have differences of opinion. Walking in harmony does not mean we have to agree about every little thing. There are lots of things we can disagree about. We can't disagree about the foundation of the faith, but we, ha- we can disagree about a lot of other things, a lot of things. And you know that. Like, we don't live in a world right now where that's okay to say, really. Like, everybody has to be all in on one side or the other, and if you're not, you're out, right? That's, that's the world. We don't have to follow how the world operates. In fact, we are called to live differently. And the church can live in harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, even in the midst of our differences. And so that's the context. And Paul is saying that God can grant us this harmony. In fact, God's the only one who can give us this harmony with one another And now here, verse 6 talks about the outcome of that harmony, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The outcome of God building a united church, a group of people who may disagree about some things with each other, but are all running towards Jesus together, are all centered on that. We may have differences of opinion about lots of things, uh, we may have differences of opinion about politics or education or the, the way that things should kind of play out in some ways. We can differ on those things. What we can't differ on is that Jesus is our hope, our Savior, and our, and our Lord. And if we're all unified in that, the little differences really just don't have to divide us. We can move forward so that together with one voice, we will what? We'll glorify God. We will worship him which is the first fruit we saw in Psalm 119. That worship and awe and amazement of God is the first fruit of the Christian life. And that can be produced in the local church as we walk together in harmony with him together, even though we have differences. And so here's the the kind of the climax of this whole argument is verse seven. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. The the way that this plays out practically in the church is that the church welcomes one another even in the midst of disagreements. We welcome each other not because, again, we have to just turn a blind eye to everything, but because Christ has welcomed us. This, This is what Spurgeon says about this. Christ did not welcome you because you were perfect. He didn't welcome you because he could see no fault in you. And he didn't welcome you because he hoped to gain something from you. Not at all. But rather, in loving condescension, he came down, right? He covered our faults and sought our good. He welcomed us into a relationship with him. So, in the same way and with the same purpose, we as Christians must welcome one another. You know what? So if Jesus welcomed you when you were not perfect and you had no and you had plenty of faults, and so did I, shouldn't we then welcome each other with faults and imperfections? Isn't that the point? To welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you means that we accept each other even when we don't agree with each other. And I think that 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 is just one of the ways that this gospel doctrine leads to gospel culture. We see hope, we see this God of endurance, this God of patience, this God of encouragement. And so then that leads us to endurance to stick with each other even when we struggle with each other because that's who God is. Now, flip just a little bit down to verse 13 of Romans 15. Here's another thing that we're going to see. It says, again, the same concepts we're seeing in Psalm 119, flow from the heart of God, from who he is. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Here's another prayer that Paul prays in the same chapter for the church in Rome. He prays that the God of endurance and encouragement would give us the ability to live in harmony. And now he's saying that God is also the God of hope and joy and peace. And so he gives us those things too. So now we're pretty much hitting on virtually everything we saw. In Psalm 119, all of the fruits that we're seeing on display in that passage are in and of the heart of God. And that's why we can live in them. Because he is these things. He is joy. He is peace. He is love. He is endurance and hope. And so he gives these things to us. And we can live them out. You and I can live these things out, not because we have the strength to do it, but because we have a God who will grant us these things. Are we praying for this? Are we asking Him to do this in our church? Are we asking for Springbrook Church to be a church that welcomes one another as Christ has welcomed us? I hope we are. That's what I've been praying for for years. I know. I think. I, I think I'm seeing it. We still have room to grow. We always will. But I'm, but I'm encouraged by what we're seeing and I'm encouraged in the work that God's done in my life because I'm, I'm not the model of perfection on any of this. But I've seen God do some great things in me. I've seen God do great things in our church. And I pray for more. I do, I hope for more. And, and I know we can get there. As we see who God for who he is and we see this God love us enough to give us the things that he is, we will see some amazing things happen in this church. All right, let me pray for you. In Christ um, Jesus, we thank you that you have loved us, that you are, in fact, the God of endurance and encouragement. God, would you give to us, grant to us, the ability to live in such harmony with one another that we can welcome each other and glorify you and sing your praise in one voice going in the same direction though each of us have differences of opinion about lots of things would you give us a love and patience and and joy in one another even in the midst of differences so that we can see your glory shine forth in this place We pray that you would do that for us. We ask it in your name. Amen.